0: Hello and welcome to Energy Oracles, a PE live podcast series that has interviewed the energy experts such as Jeff Curry, Fatih Birol, Halima Croft and Anas Halhaji. And now I have the pleasure to be joined by Joe McMonagall, Secretary General of the International Energy Forum, or IEF, which sees itself as the global home of energy dialogue. Hi Joe, please tell me about your journey that took you to the IEF and how it helps you drive the important role that the
1: IEF has to play in the world of energy. Well, Paul, it's great to be with you on the podcast. Well, I started in, you know, I've been involved in energy policy and also in the private sector for about 20 years now. I started as the chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Energy in the U.S. and also was the vice chairman of the International Energy Agency for two years, two and a half years. So I was exposed to a lot of the, not just the international policy and domestic policy at the Department of Energy, but also more so on the international cooperation stage at the International Energy Agency and developed a lot of relationships there. And then, of course, in the private sector, I continued to have sort of an international practice and also was an energy analyst for a sell-side hedge fund organization and attended all the OPEC meetings and of course traveled a lot to the Gulf region and got to develop a lot of relationships. And I think that's how I came to this position. I didn't really you know, seek it out, but it came to me and it sounded like a great opportunity. And of course, at the time, we were in the middle of COVID, there were obviously some issues with energy markets at the time, you know, we had demand reduced by about 10 million barrels a day. But on the other hand, you know, demand was still 90 million barrels a day. So I think it showed in real terms and hard data how much the world depends on oil and gas. But then, of course, we had the energy crisis of the last two years. So it's been a really it's always been a very interesting job. But I think it became a lot more consequential over the last two years because of the energy crisis and trying to educate not just policymakers, but also industry on the key issues involved.
0: Certainly. It seems to be one black swan event after another. I want to ask you a bit about your recent report and a topic that's close to your heart about the risk of an investment crunch. I think in your report, you talk about continued investment in new oil and gas will be required to avoid significant supply demand imbalances given natural decline rates of existing production. So the risk investment crunch has been talked about for a few years now, but it hasn't materialised as yet. How big is the threat now? Or Could you see it from another side, which is a lack of supply could be evened out by the lack of demand?
1: Yeah, no, we think that there's a serious issue with investment in the oil and gas sector. The first year that I was at the International Energy Forum, we put out an investment report mainly because of the effect on CapEx by COVID. You know, companies basically, you know, with the uncertainty around demand from COVID, companies really cut capex and then that continued we started to monitor that it was down about 25 percent from pre-covid times and then we started to to monitor that on a yearly basis so we've done three reports and essentially the first two years it in both years it was still 25 percent below pre-covid levels last year it was up a little bit but it was really just up a little bit because of you know higher costs and inflation, not necessarily resulting in more drilling activity or supply. So it's still a problem. We estimate that the industry it needs to invest about $600 billion a year. That's a sizable increase from what the industry is currently doing. And that's just to meet current demand levels. That's not you know, expected demand from rising population or the developing world becoming more mature with a growing middle class and and other drivers on demand. So it's a serious problem. And we don't really see demand waning here. I think we've seen time and time again, these forecasts of demand, you know, peaking have been proven incorrect. The growth in places like Southeast Asia And even Africa, you know, the Africa every two years grows by a country about the size of Thailand or France in terms of population. And so, you know, and they already have tremendous energy access and affordability issues. But we think this is a serious problem. And we're starting to see it play out, I think, over the last two years of a lack of investment in oil and gas. And you're starting to see some of that turn around, at least on the attention and focus side. But, you know, there still needs to be much more policy driven. And even from an investor standpoint, there needs to be more of an inclusive conversation about this investment topic. The reason I'm concerned about it, I think some people, it strikes them as odd that the head of an international energy organization is promoting investment in oil and gas. But the reason I'm concerned about it is because I'm worried about what the public thinks is connected to these price spikes. And I think if the public starts to connect high prices and volatility that we've seen over the last two years with the transition or climate policies, we're in big trouble because I don't care what part of the world you live in or what your political philosophy is. If the public is upset about energy prices, you know, it's something you have to pay attention to. And respond to. And as someone who wants to see progress on climate change and on the transition, I think this is something we need to pay attention to. I'm starting to see more recognition of this by policymakers. You're starting to hear the words manage the transition a lot more now than you did maybe three years ago, where it was the transition at all costs. Now I think you know we're trying to weigh competing priorities with energy security and affordability and access with the transition and advancing you know, progress on stopping climate change.
0: Yeah, I think the IEA even said about managing an orderly transition. Where can this investment come from? Do you see it from the NOCs, the national oil companies, or more from the international oil companies? Because obviously they have sort of different competing constraints and challenges the IOCs obviously have financing issues and the challenges around ESG and the NOCs have a lot more maybe leeway but at the same time the investment isn't quite coming from even them although they have definitely increased it how do you see that balance between the NOCs and the IOCs and where that investment can come from and the challenges around financing it as well?
1: Well, you're right. There's definitely a split between NOCs and IOCs on this investment topic. But even in NOCs, you know, there are some major players that are still investing quite large sums in expanding upstream production. And then there are other smaller IOCs, particularly in the developing world, that you know essentially had the same issues as IOCs in terms of needing to cut back on CapEx to target the money on other things during, especially during COVID. So it was less on uncertainty and more on is channeling the monies into different pots of the governments that they're a part of. But I think in general, the NOCs are generally, you know, focused more on CapEx. But on the IOC side, there are a lot of reasons, I think, why you mentioned a couple of them. Definitely, you know, there is this whole topic of sustainable investing and ESG investing. And, you know, that's certainly weighing on it. But there's also this own, you know, the the industry itself has imposed its own, the capital discipline concept, if you will, where they're trying to return more money to investors. You know, the sector over the last sort of maybe seven to 10 years hasn't really, you know, returned, been a great investment for investors, you know, investors instead pulled out and, Went into tech and maybe healthcare sectors, but that's turning around now. Over the last, I think, two years, when you're starting to see more private capital now into the upstream sector, but the companies are still focused on, I think, you know, return on investment. And so, when I talk to some member countries who are concerned about this investment issue, and they're talking to their producers about urging them to produce more to try to mitigate price spikes, I think just talking to producers is really only half of the problem. I think we have to involve the investor community in this discussion. Maybe, you know, for example, in the U.S., you know, the investor community doesn't necessarily have to, you know, there's not much the administration can do or policymakers in the U.S. can do to encourage the investment community to be more involved in the oil and gas sector. But I think, even sending a message that it's okay to invest in hydrocarbons. And in fact, we need to invest in hydrocarbons to mitigate price spikes and volatility and for energy security reasons. And as I said, to actually advance action on the transition and climate change. Frankly, we're going to be asking the public to do some very challenging things. And so we need to focus on keeping the public more engaged and supportive of the energy transition. And that means you know, mitigating price spikes and volatility.
0: In your report, Shaping a Living Roadmap for Energy Transition, you talk about the global north and the global south. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the obvious contradictions between developed and developing societies. Can they be resolved? You were also here talking. It seemed like you were also talking about the West, and it's interesting because the U.S. seems to be the perfect tension of consumer and producer. It's also flip-flopping on energy policy around Willow and others. What's your take on that?
1: Well, look, energy transitions, as you know, because I know you covered this during your career, have been really ongoing since 1709. But this one is different because. We're committed to eliminating CO2 emissions while energy consumption continues to grow. And we're trying to do all of this within 25 years. So this is an enormous undertaking. And really, I think developments over the last two years have demonstrated that the transition is just much more complicated and challenging than I think what we previously thought. I mean, what we're trying to do is transform a hundred trillion dollar global economy into a decarbonized energy system in in 25 years. And really, by anyone's estimation, this is a massive undertaking. And so in our report, what we've said is, and this is based on feedback we've gotten from, you know, stakeholders in every region of the world, you know, from industry, from government, from civic organizations and think tanks, you know, basically what we've concluded is that expectations of sort of a linear global transition and a one size fits all approach have really been shaken. As I said, these climate goals coexist now with energy security and affordability and access. And I think, What the recommendations that we heard from various stakeholders is that, and it was really reinforced, I think, because of the energy crisis over the past two years, is that we need to develop a multidimensional approach that is inclusive of different situations and different starting points in all over the world and is equitable. This brings into the discussion the north-south divide that you referenced. And this is increasingly developing into a sharp debate over the cost and timing of the transition, the relative burdens and its compatibility with these other priorities. And so I think there's widespread recognition now that the transition has to pass through the global south. And it's just so important for everyone's goals in the global south and those in the global north that we collaborate and cooperate more to achieve these shared goals
0: want to talk a bit about some of the ways of getting there, and in the report you talk a bit about important technologies such as carbon capture and storage and low carbon hydrogen. Are we close to a tipping point in seeing huge growth in those areas? Would you see it as a dark horse? And what do you say to those who may criticise it and say maybe the industry is flogging a dead horse? How much of a growth area story could this be? These some of these technologies.
1: Well, look, I think the starting point for this question, my answer, and I reference this a lot, is the IEA technology report that was just updated in December. And it's a summary of, I think, this challenge that we face with the energy transition. And essentially what it says is wind and solar and hydro and other developed clean energy sources can help us meet half of our goals to getting to net zero by 2050. The other half has to come from technologies that are not commercialized or even invented yet or envisioned yet. And definitely CCUS and hydrogen, I think, fit in this category. You know, things like fusion, small modular nuclear reactors, and maybe other things that we're not even thinking about right now. And so going back to your previous question, until we have these alternatives commercialized, We have to keep investing in oil and gas. And this is where the rub comes in, in terms of prices and volatility, because the world is just so dependent on hydrocarbons. And as even the net zero roadmap and other roadmaps say, in 2050, oil and gas, even meeting those different objectives in each of the categories, oil and gas will still play a pretty significant role But I think, you know, despite the challenges of the transition, I think the momentum to net zero, you know, continues, especially in advanced economies. You know, there's hundreds of billions of dollars in new finance for clean technologies available in Europe, North America, Japan, and China. And, you know, while we see strong growth for wind and solar and electric vehicles and other technologies... We're not seeing as much investment in certainly in CCUS. You're seeing some momentum in hydrogen, mainly I think because of the leadership of the EU. But now the US IRA law is also providing a lot of incentives and momentum there. But we need to have, you know, just as much investment in CCUS as well. And so I think, you know, in our, you know, dialogue sessions, there was a lot of optimism and confidence that the pace of the technology innovation will continue and even accelerate, and that these costs of CCOS and hydrogen and storage will continue to decline rapidly within this decade. So I think there was a lot of optimism, but the fact of the matter is, right now, these technologies are just not available to us. The other thing I would point out, too, again, based on this technology report, is there's a lot of private capital chasing wind and solar and some of these developed clean energy technologies, but there's not a lot of private capital going into hydrogen and CCUS. More in hydrogen, but not so much on CCUS and the circular carbon economy and other clean technologies, you know, fusion, small modular reactors and others would be also included in this. And so I think governments have to really step up to the plate here and provide, I think, the incentives and also the early stage funding to really develop these technologies because companies and industry are going to do some of it, but they're not going to invest in the riskiest types of research. And so that really has to be done by governments. Again, the U.S., I think, has taken a really leadership role here in terms of increasing clean energy R&D and other countries are starting to follow. But we're urging our member countries you know, if there's a limited amount of public monies available to invest in the transition, maybe, you know, investing in deployment of clean, of wind and solar, maybe that shouldn't be the priority because there's a lot of private capital there already. Maybe the priority should be on developing these clean energy technologies. Because as I said, this is needed to answer the other half of meeting our climate goals. So if we don't, address that, we don't have a chance of making, you know, our 2050 goal and addressing climate change.
0: Yeah, I guess that's the thing with CCUS and technology like that is that if oil and gas is going to be such a big part, if you play a big part through to 2050, then cleaning that up as much as possible is going to be crucial. I want to talk a little bit more about You mentioned touch on storage and talk a bit about security. How do you see the roles of OPEC spare capacity and SPRs, especially the US SPR, but also we've seen China build out its SPRs? How important are they to energy security? And do you see the tensions between spare capacity and OPEC and the storage and strategic storage in the US and China and the consuming countries?
1: Well, I think for the consuming countries, it's really important. You know, we're not as focused on that. That's really, you know, the mandate of the IEA. But as I talk to, you know, consuming countries that have storage capabilities or they're members of the IEA and have these commitments that they've signed up for, it's really important. I think on the, and you've seen China obviously develop, I think, rapidly develop their strategic reserves. And there are other countries that I think would like to do that, but they, you know, they just don't have the funding available to, I think, do what, replicate what China has done. Because you're really talking about developing consuming countries in this case. The spare capacity thing is really important. And I think this is one of the reasons why you've seen OPEC take moves over the last, you know, year to cut production to provide some of this spare capacity capabilities And of course, countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE are investing in expanding their production capacity for this very reason, because without spare capacity, I think it invites a lot of volatility and that's not good for the markets. And ultimately, I don't think it's good for the producing countries either because it creates headwinds for the global economy, which is ultimately, again, not good for them either. Unfortunately, I think over the last year to year and a half, there's been this focus on not so much physical markets, but on, you know, the paper market is focusing on this recession, negative global economy narrative. And so we've had almost no spare capacity for a lot of this time. And normally that would have created a lot of volatility in and of itself for markets, but it really hasn't because of the enormous focus on a potential recession and what that may do to reduce demand. But in normal times, I think this question of spare capacity would play a huge role in volatility and pricing. We just haven't seen it. But I think to OPEC's credit, they do realize this. They're the only ones, I think, that have the capability to step in with spare capacity to calm markets. So this is an important topic. And I know it's something that the OPEC ministers take quite seriously.
0: It's interesting, that debate between market management and letting the market decide the free hand of the market. I wanted to talk a little bit more about price as well. Do you see the idea of a sweet spot? I think maybe recently, or at least in the recent past, sort of 60 to 70 or 65 to 75, we've seen a bit of a sweet spot. OPEC providing the floor and maybe US shale providing a ceiling, Maybe with shale hitting the buffers, maybe that sort of the idea of a sweet spot is not realistic. What's your take on that sort of price area where producers and consumers can meet? Is there such a thing? Is there a range or is it just depends on the economic cycle and many other factors?
1: Yeah, I think it certainly depends. I mean, we don't really, you know, if you talk to ministers, you get totally different views on a sweet spot. And, you know, they don't want to talk about this publicly either. And some of them wouldn't even talk to you about it privately. But I guess what I would say is as the organization that is made up of both producer and consuming countries, we see a lot of common interest on maintaining a healthy price for oil and gas for development purposes, But also not too high a price that it creates headwinds for the global economy. And I think the conventional wisdom is that OPEC, of course, wants high prices, but I think that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I think they've been through this scenario when, you know, oil prices were at $130 a barrel and what that did to the global economy. And, you know, it's in their interest to have a very healthy global economy, a very healthy economies for consuming countries that buy their products. And so, you know, ultimately, I think that's probably one of the most important things that they look at. So I actually think there is a lot of common ground on this macro idea of, you know, healthy prices, not too high, not too low. Of course, there's disagreement on what that price point should be. But I think overall, there's a lot of common ground and agreement on making sure that prices don't get too high
0: and maybe i can get you one more question while well, i've got you which what about this the narrative in your market in the energy markets this one we've had from the energy sustainability to energy security the energy trilemma is the risk of an energy crisis that great in your view and is it greater than the climate crisis?
1: Well, look, the answer is we have to focus on both of these topics, because if you focus on one exclusively, the other one is really hurt. And we can't afford to really exclude from our focus either of these challenges. And they're very interconnected, as I referenced. I mean, I think if maybe the focus was not on energy security so much, but now it is because of, I think, really a lack of investment in the sector and while demand continues to grow, And, you know, very simple economics tell you that prices rise when there's a lack of supply to meet high demand. And so what we've seen is prices rise. There's a lot of volatility, even in, you know, the developed world. You see issues of affordability now becoming a key focus. You know, you've seen governments pour a lot of money, Western governments pour a lot of money into rescuing companies, you know, providing subsidies for consumers to sort of mitigate from these price spikes. And so that's why it's really important that we keep, you know, consumers and the public supportive of these policies. So they're very dependent on one another. You know, frankly, I'm quite optimistic that we will get there. I think the technology side has proven time and time again that we can meet these objectives. And so I'm optimistic that, you know, maybe we don't meet some interim targets in 2030 or whatever these initial phases are. But I think by 2050, we will definitely see advances in technologies that will allow us to get there. But one of the things that I focus on when I attend these clean energy meetings and the COP meeting is we have to really focus on progress over perfection. I think a lot of times, We go to these meetings and people are looking for this elusive, perfect solution. And we can't even get countries to agree on these solutions, whereas we could probably get a lot of agreement on interim solutions that still make a lot of progress. Methane would be one area that we could make a lot of progress on. Coal to gas switching would be another area that we could make a lot of progress on. And so I think we just have to take a more pragmatic approach here. And again, I think it's really just incumbent upon policymakers now, you know, it's a tough situation. And of course, you have a lot of geopolitical risks now complicating the situation more. The war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, has created a lot of problems, not just for Europe, which was already experiencing, I think, an energy crisis. And remember, we were, there are tremendous price spikes in natural gas in Europe, but even before the war in Ukraine. But that hasn't just been, you know, walled off to Europe. That created crisis all over the rest of the world where, you know, other countries were priced out of gas markets because Europe was really gobbling up all of the gas supplies. So that was kind of a situation that spread elsewhere. And so these issues are really global issues. And we have to focus on them together and a global basis in order to really advance the goals on energy security and climate change simultaneously.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening. And for more information, please check out Petroleum Economist, Carbon Economist and Hydro Economist and our other publications at Gulf Energy.